from the White Letter Production Studios in Los Angeles, California. I'm Ellie Unger-Sargon, and this is The Cut Podcast. We're the 16th, 16th stop on his tour. And uh, the tour will consist of over 30 stops. Who's hitting us right in the middle? So it's a real kind of a pleasure for us. One thing you might not know is this opportunity came to us less than a week ago. So we didn't have a whole lot of time to prepare, but uh, you know we thought it was such an important issue that we need to seize this opportunity. Also, I'd like to recognize uh, Tim, um, who has recently moved to the area from the uh, Ithaca area. And we'd like to thank you for getting in touch with Julie and kind of making this, this whole thing happen. So I really want to recognize you, okay? And I, and I hope that, um, Ellie, that you realize that, that, that Tiffany uh, kind of really helped put this thing together with Julie's help. Um, this whole uh, idea and this whole you know, anti-circumcision thing you know, came to light with me just not too long ago when uh, my girlfriend Julie uh, brought this, and I, you know, I actually saw it on my Facebook page. She posted something, so um, it kind of caught my attention, and I was like, "Hey, honey, what's 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 going on with this? This is kind of interesting. You know, can you tell me a little bit more about it?" And um, you know, so she started telling me a little bit more and explaining her uh, this little pet project that she had, and and little did I know that like four or five months later that we would have an amazing young you know, up-and-coming filmmaker here at, in the theater. You know, we've had great filmmakers, we've had a lot of documentaries, we've had movie stars, we've done all kinds of things, but tonight, I would really, it's a really a pleasure for myself and for Julie to welcome Ellie Unger-Sargent, all the way from Los Angeles, California. Ellie, thank you so much. It's been a pleasure kind of hosting you and being here with you and meeting you and finding more out about this controversial, issue. So, um, listen, I'm going to hand you over the microphone, man. Okay. So if you don't mind, come on over here and, um, and you could kind of just uh, give a word. We are going to have a Q&A afterwards. And the neat thing, let me just say this, um, that uh, the Q&A is actually part of a podcast that Ellie puts together after every single uh, uh, you know, viewing that he does. So he takes the, the questions and the answers, he edits them up, and then they go out on, you know, for a, a podcast. So I think that's really cool. So we're going to be part of that. So really after this, I hope you'll have questions, and I hope you'll, you'll give them to him. And he is uh, very uh, used to answering the tough questions. So bring the tough ones. Ellie, let me hand this over to you and again. It's really a pleasure for me to have you and for Julie to have you here. And I'm, I'm sure Tiffany feels the same way. So... Uh, without further ado, Eliander Sargon, everybody. Thank you so much, Michael. Uh, a few words of thanks are in order before we get started here. I want to thank the whole network who's sponsoring um, this crazy 30-city North American tour, which I'm so happy to be a part of. Uh, I want to thank Tiff and Julie for uh, doing a great job of organizing this, even though it was on sort of short uh, notice. Uh, I really appreciate all the work that you guys put into it. And Michael, uh, where are you, man? 
You've been an awesome host, and I really, really appreciate your hospitality and your warmth. Um, hospitality is a real art, and not everyone has it, but you've gotten it in spades, man. So thanks so much. I really appreciate it. Um, so this is how things are going to go tonight. We're going to take a look at my film, Cut. Uh, it's 70 minutes long. And um, after the film, there's going to be a question and answer session. And uh, as Michael mentioned, the question and answer session will be podcast. And so what we're going to do is have someone go around with a wireless microphone. Just let them hold it close to, to, to you when you're asking your question so that the podcast audience can hear you. Don't bother grabbing it or speaking you know, right into it. That, that, that's not necessary. Uh, after the question and answer session, I'm going to show you a trailer, an extended trailer from my next project, which is called The People Without a Land. It's a documentary film about the Israeli-Palestinian conflict that I've been laboring over for three years now. Uh, so I'm very excited to show you that. And then at the end, after the trailer, uh, we have DVDs and cause bracelets for sale. The DVDs uh, of Cut uh, are on a special sale for people who attend Cut Tour screenings. Uh, we're selling them at $20 per DVD, and if you buy more than one, it's $15 per unit. We take cash in any major form of credit card, and then we have the cause bracelets, and those are $2 a piece. So thank you so much for coming out tonight, uh, and without further ado, uh, just give me about a minute to get up, run up to the projection booth, and uh, we'll get started, and uh, I'll present to you my film cut. Thank you again so much for coming out. We're going to start our question and answer session now. Um, I'm wondering if it if 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 it's at all possible if we could all come a little closer so that'll be easier to get the mic to everyone and we won't have to wait so long in between questions. But uh, is that all right with everyone if we just sort of come to the front rows? All right. Uh, do we have any questions, comments? Okay. All right. So. Um, well, what I found really interesting was that I was born, uh, I mean, I was raised Catholic, but I was also circumcised. And I, as far as my own knowledge, I, I don't think it was for religious reasons. It was for um, health benefits. Um, so I think it's interesting how those worlds sort of came together and um, somehow one became the other. and and. What was also interesting is how it made me, like, at first I was like, is this some kind of conspiracy? Like, what's going on? Like, how are they passing along this information, like these medical, whatever, uh, studies saying that circumcision is, first it's good for cancer and then syphilis, whatever it is of the day. And it's just fascinating that the human being um, and society and how that process, I still don't have a clear answer to how that happens, but I don't think it's out of um, um, malintent. You know, I don't think it's a bad intention. I just think it's a fascinating one, how they can find support in the medical field for this thing that pretty much sounds like it seems like it started for religious reasons. Well, it's, that's very well put, um, and I, I, I take your point very well. A, a, a small uh, correction. It didn't really start in this country for religious reasons. Um, it was adopted from the Jewish practice, which is why it resembles the Jewish practice so closely. You know, there, there are male genital cutting practices all over the world. Some of them are less severe than American circumcision and Jewish circumcision, and some of them are more severe. 
Uh, so in the Philippines, for example, you have uh, the, what's, uh, what I call the, the, the dorsal slit, um, where they just sort of uh, make an incision along uh, the dorsal side of the foreskin, and that's their cutting practice. Uh, in Australia, the aboriginals actually subincise. So on the other end of the spectrum, they actually subincise, which is um, they split the penis down the urethra, um, making sort of a two halves out of it. Um, and so you have all of these sorts of cultural practices, and American circumcision and Jewish circumcision are pretty much the same, and they're pretty radical. Muslim circumcision, for example, is not typically as radical as uh, Jewish and American circumcision. So, but it, how did it start in this country? It started in this country as a Victorian health fad, um, and it had to do with um, uh, ideas and understandings of sexuality at the time. And of course, the Victorians weren't fans of sex, although they, you know, <laughs> were extremely sexual in some, uh, some very interesting ways. Uh, but, you know, overtly and, and consciously, they were very uh, prudish, as it were. And it was, and the foreskin was seen as a very sexual thing, and so they saw, they thought it was a great idea to circumcise boys who were masturbating. That was one of the early justifications for it in this country. But again, the history of circumcision in the United States was always about the so-called health benefits. And what I think it really demonstrates in a very profound way is that as advanced and civilized as we think we are, what we really are is just a little different in our ways of coming up with justifications for cultural practices. So if you want a cultural practice, and again, when I say want, I don't mean that there's some kind of intention or conspiracy, but if a cultural practice is to survive in our culture, well, you need to come up with medical reasons for it. You need to come up with scientific reasons for it. Um, as it turns out, this is as irrational in this culture as it is in every other culture. Um, maybe irrational is not the right word, but um, what I'm trying to get at is that um, it doesn't matter who you speak to. Um, you know, even the most, well, with the exception of a few fringe characters, the vast majority of people in the, the medical community the world over, including in this country where circumcision is still a mainstream practice, will tell you that circumcision is not necessary for the health of the individual. That in and of itself is a remarkable, remarkable fact that, that the most commonly practiced surgical procedure in this country, the vast majority of medical authorities will admit is an unnecessary medical procedure. That, I mean, that should blow your mind right there. Um, but again, you know, we have this practice. It, it's very deeply embedded and... Um, even in our culture, in our post-industrial advanced culture, um, you know, we have a way of carrying on with practices that have embedded themselves, uh, even if they're not necessarily uh, necessary. Yeah, and the, uh, for me, that uh, was the most fascinating uh, feeling I got from the film. I just saw a documentary uh, last night on um, peak, it was on oil, it wasn't necessarily on peak oil, but it was about how important oil is in our lives. And um, even in one of the points of the documentary, one of the things that it spoke about was how people are so, and like this woman said, um, there was a woman talking about how people just can't accept it into their consciousness that like someone, that this would happen for 
And so, like, they just kind of close their eyes, they close their ears, and they just kind of shut off. Like, they can't, they just won't even open up to the idea that what's been, uh, been having been done for so long is, like, where to their own child was pointless. Not, you know what I mean? Or unnecessary. Absolutely. Yeah. And a, an important feature of um, American hospital circumcision is that it's done outside of the vision and earshot of the parents. Um, now, of course, this is just sort of <laughs> the way that the doctors managed this whole situation, right? That they, and, you know, if I were going to be doing something like this and I were the medical physician, I'd probably not want the parents to be anywhere near it either because they might start asking some very uncomfortable questions about why their child is uh, experiencing such a deep trauma at such a young age. Uh, but, but in hospitals, it is done completely out of uh, vision and earshot of the parents and then the parents are brought back the baby uh, after the circumcision and oftentimes uh, we know this I mean there, this is not even controversial you know it interferes with uh, breast feeding cycles and um, you know the baby will off I've I'm now you know traveling around the country and I've been hearing women telling me and the very brave women who will say that they circumcised their first son but uh, or their first and second but their third they refused to um, that's a, that takes an enormous amount of courage. Uh, and they'll tell me, you know, they, they, they brought him back, my son that, that, I, that I had circumcised, and I didn't understand, but he didn't want to breastfeed, and he was very upset, and he was very irritable. And Yeah, it's, uh, and, but again, that, that feature of it being done outside of yeah. the awareness of uh, parents um, distinguishes uh, hospital circumcision from ritual circumcision, for example, in which, of course, it's done in full view of, of everybody. And the, uh, the last thing I wanted to say is I thought it was a very fair documentary. I felt like you, I mean, it felt like it was leaning towards circumcision is bad, but it also really gave the viewpoints of all the people who felt like circumcision was important. Well, thank you so much. Yeah. I did try hard. Um, I really felt that, yeah. I, I don't think it's my responsibility to hide my view. There, there's, some, there's a school of thought out there, you know, in American journalism in particular, that believes that um, objectivity means sort of, you know, you give equal time to both sides and you don't express a viewpoint as the maker. I'm not down with that at all. <laughs> um, I, and I don't think it's my responsibility to hide my opinion. Um, but I did see part of my responsibility as weeding out and pointing to the weaker rationales for this practice and allowing people who had actually thought about it and still support the practice to put their best foot forward, which is why, you know, when someone, when a religious authority tells me that, they, that we do this because it's healthy, I, you know, to me, that's like my cue to sort of get the experts in here and say, hang on a second, all right? Um, I can have a very intelligent conversation with someone who says, you know, what, what Rabbi Warsh said, which is, I'm an abuser, which was a kind of an amazing moment. Um, but I can have an intelligent conversation with him um, because he's thought it through and he's not denying the facts or burying his head in the sand. He knows exactly what's going on. Then we can have a, a conversation and, you know, an argument, right? And that's kind of what I'm getting. That's, that's one of the things that I've been trying to get at here and, and that I tried to do in the film was to show you if you actually take the time to think about this issue, what it poses to the Jewish community in particular is the notion that you have two choices at, at the end of the day after you've done your research and gotten rid of all the flimsy reasons, right? 
the bottom line is you have to choose. What, what kind of a Jew are you going to be? Are you going to be the kind of Jew who says, I do whatever God told me to do? Are you going to be a fundamentalist? Or are you going to be someone who says human ethics and the human enterprise play a key and vital role in the Jewish tradition? And if my conscience tells me that this practice is wrong, then it can't be the right thing to do as a Jew. And that's, that's kind of what I was trying to push at without strong footing it. Any other questions, comments? Oh, yeah, right there. Um, a couple of things <laughs> regarding the um, the masturbation argument or, or the history of, of the reasoning um, being masturbation. It reminded me, and it's, this is the first time I've thought about it, it all the times that I've heard that, that point. Um, I took an early Native American history course and the professor was um, of the Mohawk Nation from up here. And he said that that they that they considered one of the one of the definitions of masturbation was when the boys would go have their pleasures with the farm animals. <laughs> so I, I'm wondering <laughs> how, how much that um, particular definition of of the word is is really the true historical intent by many of the proponents for. Circumcision. Um. Interesting. So you're asking whether bestiality played a role <laughs> in the institution yes. of circumcision in this country. I don't know anything about that. Um, yeah. I have not heard anything along those lines. Um, I mean, we know bestiality is something that's sort of gone on time immemorial, and it happens in this country still. Um, I think um, the masturbation thing, uh, it's important to emphasize, you know, I it obviously has a shock value in our culture post-sexual revolution to suggest that anyone would do something to prevent anyone from masturbating. That's, that's, that sort of has a negative ring to our post-sexual revolution ears, which is as it should be. Uh, but there were many reasons given, um, and a lot of them had to do with these very bizarre um, uh, sort of pseudo-scientific medical concepts that existed in the late 19th century. Um, uh, you know, sort of sexual energies and, um, you know, spermatorrhea and like these really weird sorts of concepts that um, I, fascinating if you go back and look, but sort of says, tells us more about the sexual hangups of the late 19th century than it does about the human body. Um, but um, I mean, it is harder to masturbate without a foreskin. That's the other thing that should be said, mm. right? If you don't have a foreskin, you need um, at the very least, some form of artificial lubrication. Um, you know, depending on how tight your circumcision is, it might actually be painful to masturbate, even with artificial lubrication. Um, so, I mean, they knew what they were doing. The only time in, this, this is so weird, the only time in human history in which it was believed that the foreskin doesn't play any role in sexual pleasure is our time right now. There's a cultural belief out there that there's no difference between the sexual pleasure that a circumcised man experiences and the sexual pleasure that an intact man experiences. And the only reason that this is the, this unique period in history that this be belief even exists is because for the practice to continue in a post-sexual revolution era, you need to basically say something along the lines of, well, it doesn't make a difference. 
but everyone in previous generations knew. I mean, this goes all the way back to like the, the 12th century with Moses Maimonides, who was a you know, great Jewish thinker, philosopher, and physician, who said, you know, obviously the, the, the foreskin is, 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 is a really important part of sexual pleasure. And of course, for Maimonides, getting rid of the foreskin helped a man focus on the more important things in life as would befit any medieval thinker of his time. So, you know, and, and the Victorians were no exception to this either. They got that it was, you know, a, a, scent, a, a sort of site of sexual pleasure. Okay, my other question is sort of unrelated now, but I'm just curious what they, what, what is taught in medical schools about the function of the foreskin? Uh, we didn't learn a damn thing about it. Um, nothing about the functions of the foreskin. Uh, and I mentioned in the film, I'd never even heard of this thing called the Ridge Band. Now, the Colden Taylor study in the British Journal of Urology was originally published in 1996. I went to medical school a couple years after that. Now, I don't know what's going on now, but um, I actually uh, have had the pleasure of uh, finding out that my film is being used in some curriculums uh, in medical schools now, which is kind of awesome. Um, but, um, yeah, no, I mean, nothing. You don't talk about it. In, in many medical textbooks, the men depicted are actually circumcised, um, in American some American textbooks. And in some textbooks, it's just kind of like amb amb left ambiguous, you know? Um, but no, I mean, we, we don't learn about this stuff. And my understanding is that it's not the norm to teach this when you get to that part of the body. Um, I'm sure in part because of, uh, you know, the controversial nature of the subject in this country. And it should be controversial. We're talking about cutting off parts of men's penises. But, <laughs> you know, I hope that, um, you know, things will advance. But, yeah, as far as I know, it's still not um, something that, that is normally talked about. And is there, you know, what benefit do the doctors get from urging parents of a newborn to have the circumcision done when they're sitting on the fence and they say, you know, you know, one doctor says it's not medically necessary. You're telling me I should do it. What, what, what is that doctor getting out of it? <laughs> right. Okay. So the obvious answer to that question is that the doctor is getting money. Um, and that's true to an extent. In other words, Doctors get a certain amount of money for every circumcision they perform. It's a relatively short procedure to perform. They don't usually have to deal with any of the consequences. Um, if there are any complications, for example, a lot of the complications go completely unreported. Many of them happen in the first week after discharge from the hospital. Um, so it's, what I'm getting at is that it's, it's, it is an easy way to make money. So there's a financial incentive. Um, some hospitals actually will even charge in built into the birth bill that they charge the insurance companies they have a standard circumcision charge whether or not the child is circumcised and whether or not the child is a boy or a girl they'll still have that built in and they'll bill that the insurance companies for that um so there is a financial incentive i don't put a lot of time or effort into talking about the money trail and all that stuff because i to be honest with you, I, I really don't think that's what this is about. It's a, maybe, maybe a small part of it, but I think that we're in a circumcising culture, and one of the things that happens when you're in a culture that does this, and it's the norm, 
is that you have a kind of self-perpetuating cycle of violence, if you will, where to admit that there's something wrong with circumcision for many American doctors, especially male doctors, would be to admit that there's something wrong with their penis. And that's a hard thing to do. Um, and so I believe that there are probably some pretty powerful psychological motivating factors um, behind, and again, this is changing. I've noticed that doctors are, are much less, um, I, I guess it depends what part of the country you're in, but many doctors have taken a much more neutral stance on this, especially since the 1999 American Academy of Pediatrics statement came out on the subject, which was neutral. Um, I think it should have been negative, but it was neutral, and a lot of doctors are mirroring that. You saw that in my film when I asked about the health benefits. Um, but the, if, if you encounter a doctor who is strongly promoting this, um, with very few exceptions, I would say it's safe to say that there's probably some kind of psychological motivation uh, that has something to do with their own status or something that they've done to someone very close to them. I know you covered it briefly in the film, but uh, what are your personal views on the foreskin restoration? I think foreskin restoration is fantastic um, for guys who, who need that um, or want it. Um, I, the guys that I met who were restoring their foreskins told me a very similar story. It was very consistent. They said, and this was a number of them, they told me I was getting into my late 30s, early 40s, and I stopped enjoying sex. I stopped feeling what I used to feel in my penis, and nothing helped, and so I found foreskin restoration, and since I started, things have significantly improved. Now, what this says to me, um, and whatever you think about the reliability of their testimony and, you know, all that anecdotal, whatever, but what this says to me, and I, I believe them, is that some percentage of the circumcised male population is going to be so affected by the loss of the nerve endings that it will actually interfere with sexual function. Um, we have some new data that just came out uh, just a couple months ago from a large population uh, study in Denmark that uh, demonstrated that there are higher levels of significant um, sexual dysfunction in circumcised men than in intact men in that country. Um, we also have evidence that there's higher levels of painful sex for the female partners of circumcised men. Um, this is sort of, you know, a groundbreaking study. It was huge. It was a population-based study. Thousands and thousands of people were, were surveyed here. Um, of course, more work needs to be done on this, um, but I think that definitely you're at the very least rolling the dice when it comes to sexual function with circumcision because we know for a fact based on these testimonies that some number of people are going to suffer sexual dysfunction that is directly related to their circumcision. Now it's also true that we have evidence that later in life, uh, this was Edward, in Edward Lauman's study, uh, later in life um, there seems to be, among American men, less sexual dysfunction in the circumcised than in the intact. And I asked Professor Lauman to explain this finding, like, wh where do you think this comes from? He had another finding also that was very interesting, which is that circumcised men 
um, masturbate more than intact men after all other factors are controlled for like education and socioeconomic status and all those things. Circumcised men masturbate more and engage in a wider variety of sexual practices. So this was his two-part explanation for the, these bizarre findings. Um, and he did proper statistical analysis. This is, I, I take this study very seriously. And what he said to me was very interesting. He said, um, he thinks that circumcised men engage in a wider variety of sexual practices and masturbate more because there isn't that inherent natural satisfaction from sex that an intact person would have. And so they're constantly chasing a sort of um, satisfaction that they, that they can't get. Th this is his speculation. The data is the data, and this is his explanation. And what he, but what he said that was really interesting was that the, the sexual dysfunction that they found, the statistically significant higher levels of sexual dysfunction in circumcised men later, uh, sorry, uh, intact men later in life, was because it, it was particularly the, uh, the extra masturbation factor that had the reverse effect on sexual dysfunction. So the more you masturbate, the less sexual dysfunction you're going to experience. And because circumcised men masturbate more, they experience less sexual dysfunction later in life. It was a 10-year period. I think it was like 55 to 65 or something like that. Um, but all this to say that um, it's a real roll of the dice um, when you just go around cutting away primary erogenous tissue uh, as to what exactly the effects are going to be on sexual function. And I think there's a growing body of evidence that suggests that some uh, percentage of the population are going to have negative impact on their sexual function as a result of circumcision. And I was that. My thinking was, well, I would never circumcise my daughter if I had one. I don't. I have two boys. But so why would I do it to my sons? But then did that ever come up? the parallel between female circumcision and male circumcision? Yeah, I mean, Dan uh, Strangerd, the guy who protests outside of the University of Chicago hospitals, brings it up. Um, and I've had a lot of conversations about this with people, and I actually think it's a really important comparison. Um, we have a cultural revulsion here to female genital cutting that we don't have toward male circumcision. And I think that says something really important about the ways in which our culture views violence against the male body versus violence against the female body. Um, so there's, there's a definitely a double standard here. Um, even very intelligent people just have this kind of um, deep cultural revulsion to cutting female genitalia. But when it comes to cutting male genitalia, they might be like, oh, maybe, you know, I don't know. Um, and yeah, that's a double standard. Um, the other thing that's really important to note about this, there, there are a number of important things to note about this. Number one, female circumcision is an umbrella term that refers to a wide variety of practices. Some of them are radical. Some of them are more radical than male circumcision. Some of them are less radical than male circumcision. Um, and um, it, the other thing that, you know, people tend to forget is that even the African women who suffer the most extreme form of female genital mutilation, type 4 in the World Health Organization categorization, which is infibulation, where all of the external genitalia are cut away and just a little hole is, is left for urine and menses, and they oftentimes have to you know, cut them open for sexual... Uh, it's, it's horrible. Those women 
we know still enjoy sex. I, you know, how they enjoy it and how it compares to an intact woman, I, I can only begin to, to imagine. Um, but the point is that female genital, and that, that's a minority of the practice. Type 4 female genital mutilation um, is, is a very small minority. And the majority female genital cutting practices are much less radical than that. And there are many, a large proportion of female genital cutting practices are either equivalent to or less radical than male circumcision. These are all facts. Um, so, yes, it's difficult to say exactly how a person's sex life is affected by these genital cutting practices. It's very difficult. We don't have tools with the precision that I'd like to be able to talk about it. But it clearly affects it. And I raised a number of points in my film in which the mechanics of sex itself are affected by this. You have issues with lubrication and, you know, the penis moving in and out of itself. And, um, I mean, we can get further and further into this. There are all sorts of implications for sexual experience when you make this kind of alteration in form to the function of sex. Um, but, you know, the bottom line is we have a double standard in this country. And for a person who thinks about this and wants a consistent position, there are two possibilities. You can either say that we should respect female genital cutting practices and, and, and um, overturn the law in this country that prohibits them. Uh, and then you have a consistency because you're saying, you know, these genital cutting practices, these cultural genital cutting practices are important because they're, they're important to the cultures from which they come. And therefore, they should be protected and the parents should have the right to do it. Um, which is a consistent position, or you can have my position, which is to say um, no infant's genitals should ever be altered unless it's absolutely medically necessary without their permission. Those are the two consistent positions that you can have. That's our show. If you have any questions, comments, or suggestions, please email them to us at cutdocumentary at gmail.com. And if you like what you've heard today, please support us by buying our film at www.cutthefilm.com. 